right, so kids in the room, all the children in the building. You guys all paying attention? Um, are you guys all paying attention? I need to hear from you. Okay, I hear a few. So how many of the kids in the room, maybe the big kids too, have ever had a hermit crab? Or who have a hermit crab? Currently. Okay. Second question. Speaking of hermit crabs. Okay. Second question. Any of you kids, do you have a computer game that you like to play? Like a video game. The more complicated, the better. Okay? So can I have a volunteer? I see a hand back there in the back. You want to come on up, Mr. Lehman? Okay. Thank you for your boldness. Okay, so I have an assignment. Have you ever had a hermit crab? You have. Okay, so he's familiar with hermit crabs. And have you, do you have a video game that you like to play? Is it complicated? Sort of. Okay, close enough. All right, so here's what I'd like you to do. Could you please explain the computer game to this hermit crab? His name is Tamatoa, and some of you will get that reference. Moana. Wait, what's it called? What's the movie? Moana. Moana. There we go. Okay. Um, so if you could explain that, then the, the hermit crab could, like, play the game with you. Maybe you could even, like, you know, practice over break, and then in January you could report, like, the hermit crab's high score. So do you want to go ahead and explain that to the hermit crab? Yeah, just explain it so that, just so that the hermit crab, so that Tamatoa can understand how to play the game. You're not talking to me. I, he's he's going to play the game. So <laughs> you want to you talk to him. Okay, well that's a fairly simple explanation. How do you think, how do you think he's going to do? Not good? Is that, be <laughs> is that because of your explanation? Or do you think it, it's difficult? Okay, because the game is difficult. Do you think it has anything to do with him being a hermit crab? Yeah, okay. All right, great. Well, thank you. Appreciate you coming up. Okay, so why in the world am I talking about hermit crabs? Um, and why would I subject our poor, brave soul to explain his video game to this hermit crab? Well, we as human beings are far, far greater than hermit crabs, right? Um, the question that I want you to think about is what does it take for God to explain himself to us? To make himself known to us? Like, how can we actually know God? What is God like? What's he like? So there's a place in the Psalms, in Psalm 50, verse 21, where God is recounting the deeds of the wicked and he says to them these things you have done 
and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So in other words, you thought my silence was approval. God is not just a great big one of us. He is totally other. He's in a class by himself. So maybe you've had the experience, you know, if you've gone to like a national park or you've gone to the mountains of Colorado or some other kind of place where there's a breathtaking landscape and you take these pictures and then you look at the pictures and then you try to show the pictures to somebody when, when you get home and it's like, ah, oh, the pictures just don't do it justice, right? Or you try to describe an experience like that, some sublime experience with a sunrise or a sunset or something, and your words just kind of fall flat. So it's one thing to describe a rock, okay, something that's obviously finite, but concrete, it's an object with finite language. It's another thing to describe your feelings for someone when you're falling in love, right? Mere words of prose are oftentimes not enough. You need to grab poetry with metaphor and analogy and on and on. So the, the more complex, the more intangible a thing gets, the more difficult it is to find one-to-one correlations in language, right? And again, we're still just in the realm of describing finite reality. So have you ever wondered how can finite language describe infinite reality? How does the ineffable, the indescribable, the incomprehensible, the unfathomable, the inexplicable, the inconceivable become known and understood. How's that even possible? So, again, I I think we can just assume so many things and we don't realize the craziness of reality. So we need to just stop and think about this. So in Isaiah 40 and elsewhere in Isaiah, there's a refrain that goes something like this. Here's Isaiah 40, 18 and 40, 25, back to back. God says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Or in 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Do you see? Like, Houston, we have a problem. Whenever we encounter something that's outside the box of our previous experience, we have to rely on analogical language, right? Metaphor, simile, to help us describe what we encounter. If God's holiness, he's the holy one, is his incomparable perfections, his uniqueness, his singularity, the fact that he's in a class by himself, he's peerless, then you see we've got a problem, right? How are you going to know what God is like? We ask, what is God like? And the answer is, well, not like anything. Not like anyone. He really isn't like anyone or anything we know or see. So we see this like when there's theophanies in the Bible, when God shows up and kind of visits, whether through a vision or whatever. One of the prophets, Isaiah 6, or Ezekiel's visions, or in the book of Revelation. And what kind of language do the writers use? Well, they saw something, and it's like this, and it has the appearance of that, and it's sort of like... They're doing the best they can. 
just complicate it a little bit further. How many of you know more than one language? Or at least you've studied more than one language. You probably, yeah, we've studied, but we, it didn't really stick. Okay? So how often do you lose something when you translate a word or a phrase, especially an idiom or a joke or a saying, out of the heart language to the, to the other language? Well, the more concrete, simple the thing, the less likely that is to happen. You know, a chair is a thea, is a chaise, okay? But the more abstract and complex the thing, the more likely this kind of lost in translation is to happen. So then, what was God giving up? Like, what's lost in the translation for him to accommodate us by speaking in our languages? I mean, it's a massive accommodation for him to even communicate with us at all. No wonder we use the negative to describe God. Infinite. Immutable. He doesn't change. Incomprehensible. You can't comprehend him. It's inevitable. Kind of necessarily part of what we have to deal with as finite beings dealing with the infinite. Now, does all this mean that we can't know anything about God? Does it mean that we should despair of any real knowledge? No. So I don't say any of this to, like, depress us. I'm not suggesting we can't know anything about God. And I'm definitely not saying, you know, you can't really know God. Every conception will be, you know, like, idolatrously low and distorted caricature of who he really is. No. <clears throat> we know people by their words and actions. And God has spoken and God has acted, and we can see and we can hear those self-disclosures. We can know God truly, even if we can't know God exhaustively. And we can because he's revealed himself to us. So A.W. Tozer once wrote this. He said, what is God like? If by that question we mean what is God like in himself, there is no answer, at least no answer that we can understand. If we mean, what has God disclosed about himself that the reverent reason can comprehend? There is an answer both full and satisfying. For while his essential nature is incomprehensible, he in condescending love has by revelation declared certain things to be true of himself. So it's kind of like we're in the nursery of this world. Or you could think, because of our sinfulness, little kind of toddler, street urchin children. And he's coming down into the nursery, and he's doing baby talk to get down on our level. Because he plans to adopt us and make us his own. So it's what God has di disclosed about himself that we now turn our attention to, all right? So Advent season <clears throat> is a time to focus our attention on the coming of Christ. Advent means coming, right? So if you've been with us over the month of December, um, Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And we've looked at John 1, 1 to 18. Um, last week we looked at verse 14. This week we're going to look at the last five verses, verses 14 to 18, right? So this is the fourth 
and final Sunday of Advent and the end of our, our look at the prologue of John's Gospel, verses 1 to 18 that Jemmy read. So John's Gospel opens different than any of the other Gospel accounts, any of the other biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, okay? Doesn't open with a genealogy or a virgin conception. This one starts all the way back in the beginning, right? Jemmy read it for us. Look at verses 1 to 5 again. And you want to keep your finger in John 1. So in the beginning, echoes of Genesis 1, was the Word. Which, if you're thinking about the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and what did He do? He spoke. Let us make. And it was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So obviously the word is distinct from God, but then and the word was God. One with, equal to. That's crazy. He, or could be translated this one, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So the word is the agent by which all things were created. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or conquered it or mastered it. So if you just had these five verses, the word in verses 1 to 5 could be taken as impersonal. In fact, at the time of John's writing, the logos in Greek thought referred to this impersonal principle of reason that gave order to the cosmos. So the real shocker comes down in verse 14, which is where our text begins this morning. Verses 14 to 18. John the Apostle makes it clear that there is a personal God behind the universe. The Word became flesh, and he has a name. His name is Jesus. So three points this morning. The Word became flesh is point number one. Point number two, why? Why? to show us God's glory. Point number three, to give us God's grace. All right? So point number one, the Word became flesh. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became a human in real flesh and blood. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, the Heavenly Father, and there's way more that we, can, that, that we can see in this verse here, 14, than we could ever consider this morning. In fact, we took a whole week on it last week, right, if you were here. So you can find that on the website if you missed it. Um, but what we want to simply notice here this morning is that the infinite took on finitude. Better than that, the Word became flesh. And even though the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea of a triune God just kind of blows our minds, one in three and three in one, we can understand, can't we, that you can't separate a person from his words. So our words are inseparable from who we are. Like if I promise to help you and then I don't show up, you're going to say, why didn't you come? Where were you? You said. I can't respond with, 
Well, those were just my words. It wasn't me. Our words are inseparable from who we are. So what is your native tongue? Most likely English, maybe Spanish, maybe French, maybe Swahili, maybe Tamil, maybe Chinese. What's God's native tongue? If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, when he said, let there be, what language was he speaking in? Well, I think we can pretty much guarantee it wasn't English. It's actually a really thought-provoking statement in the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. You see, that, again, the agency of the Son in creation. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only did he create the universe through the word all things were made, but he also upholds everything by his word. So the beginning of verse 2, if you were to read it literally, it says, in these last days he's spoken to us in son. God's native tongue, in a sense, is Son. All creation was made through the Son, remember? All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the, and the earth, and He did so by words, and the Son, the Word, is the agent of all creation. See the same thought in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Jesus Christ, through whom all things, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1, I won't read that one. So our words are inseparable from who we are. God's word reveals his glory. His word creates the heavens and the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. The works and the words of God reveal the glory of God in creation and redemption. And now the Word of God, inseparable from who He is, became flesh and dwelt among us. God, from the beginning, has been revealing Himself through the Word. He speaks Son, and we see what He's like. That happened in creation, and it happened when his son took on flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the supreme revelation of God's character. Look down at John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, unmediated glory, we couldn't handle it. The only God who is at the Father's side, inseparable and yet distinct, he has made him known. So Jesus is the narration of God. He's the autobiography of God, in a sense, the self-portrait. All these things are going to break down to some degree as far as trying to describe things, but they get at this truth. So 
in the Old Testament, the word of God is the means by which God speaks and acts. The means by which he says things and does things. His means of self-disclosure. Remember last week we looked at Exodus 33. Moses said, show me your glory. And what did God do? He spoke. He proclaimed his name. His name is who he is, a summary of who he is. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word of God revealed the character of God. And so we have this glorious but incomplete kind of pencil sketch in the Old Testament. In Christ, the word made flesh, we have the self-disclosure of God in 3D and full color. Another way to reinforce the point. In the Ten Commandments, God said, don't make any graven images. Only he has the right and the ability to make, to render a true image of himself. And he had already done that by making human beings in his image. Nevertheless, obviously because of sin, we distorted and shattered that image so we no longer naturally reflect the glory of God. We tell a lie about God. Certainly we can tell some true things. You know, we're re- why are we relational? Why are we creative? What? Well, because we're made in God's image, and he's relational, and he's a creator. But when we lie, and we're selfish, and we're prideful, and all these things, it distorts what we were supposed to reflect. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. To see him is to see God. The word became flesh. This mind-blowing wonder of infinitude entering finitude. The creator entering creation, becoming a creature. The word became flesh. Okay. So that's point number one. The word became flesh. But why? Point number two, to show us God's glory. Again, back to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word became flesh to show us the glory of God. And the word glory means, you know, weight or substance. If a person has glory, they have great wealth or substance, honor, majesty. When referring to God, glory is another way of speaking of God's godness. Like, again, he's in a class by himself. All the superlatives belong to him alone. No one has glory like God has glory. So we are, no surprise, impressed when the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and dwelt among us. We're going to be impressed with what we see, right? I mean, he turns water to wine at the wedding of Cana. John chapter 2. I mean, he's just, hey, go fill up those jars and just, boom, 150 gallons of water turned into the best wine. That would be like 750 bottles of, you know, our typical size bottle of wine. He healed the sick. He fed the 5,000 with a boy's lunch. He walked on water. He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. All that revealed his glory. But then there's this interesting and strange thing that happens in the book of John. 
especially from chapter 12 on. So yes, Jesus' glory is revealed through signs and wonders, but it becomes clear that his glory will be supremely revealed, supremely visible, seen through his humiliation, his death, and then his subsequent resurrection and exaltation. We considered this last week, but it's worth repeating here so that we see it. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified because he's going to go to the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. By my death, I will bear much fruit. Many lives will be saved and transformed. So if you want to see the fullness of the glory of Jesus, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, you've got to look not just at the miracles. You've got to look at the cross of Christ. A few verses later, John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. This is why he came. This is why he took on flesh, is to die. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the true glory of God is not seen in impressive displays, most ultimately, but in some things that are kind of surprising and shocking. When Jesus crosses racial barriers and reaches the marginalized and the stigmatized, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, offering her living water, or when he invited Zacchaeus, well, he invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He touched and healed the lepers. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He was tempted as we are so he could be a sympathetic savior and mediator. He washed his disciples' feet, John 13, and showed them that the path of greatness is through humble and loving service. So his glory was not displayed in these like displays of sheer power and dominance though he certainly has the power to do that the glory of God was seen in the greatest wonder the greatest sign the humble even humiliating service of death on a cross the merciful substitution of Christ in our place for our Sin. So who would have ever conceived of a God? Like, what is God like? Who would have ever conceived of a God who was humble? Who would come and do whatever it took to mercifully rescue us from ourselves and from sin and death and hell. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there is incredible glory. What is God like? There's incredible glory in his shame and in his weakness. There's victory in that apparent defeat. There's strength in that utter weakness. There's beautiful purpose in that ugly victimization. He was the victim of injustice. So he is the good and sovereign shepherd. He is strong and able, but he's also the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So why did the word become flesh? To reveal the glory of God. Okay, what is God like? He's not just omnipotent and powerful, though he is. 
He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see that glory most clearly and most ultimately in the cross of Christ. God speaks Son. So to see Jesus is to see the glory of the Father, the glory of God, what God is like. Don't ever pit the character of Jesus against the character of God the Father. Sometimes, you know, certainly in our culture around us, you know, God was kind of like having a bad day in the Old Testament, kind of hair trigger, you know, temper, and, you know, he's just like angry and throwing lightning bolts and all this stuff. And then Jesus is meek and mild and, no. God's merciful and he's just in the Old Testament. And Jesus is merciful for sure. And he also says some pretty serious warnings for those who stick their fingers in their ears. And he talks about hell. So God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus didn't have to like, you know, twist his arm to love us. His love sent Jesus to remove the barriers so that we could be reconciled to God. So to see Jesus is to see the glory of the Father, the glory of God, what God is like. In fact, the Apostle John later on in his gospel recounts this exchange in chapter 14 beginning in verse 5 so thomas said to him lord we do not know where you are going how can we know the way jesus said to him i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me if you had known me you would have known my father also because to know the son is to know the father from now on you do know him and have seen him because you know me and you've seen me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the invisible God who dwells in inapproachable, unapproachable light, whom no one can see, no one ever has seen nor can see the infinite, incomprehensible God, this God in the person of his Son, the Word made flesh, made the invisible God visible. God of all creation becoming a creature. He came and walked with us. He moved into the neighborhood. Why? To show us the glory of God that we might see the glory of God and to show us what God is like but this seeing is not ultimately meant to be just kind of like this passive observation, right? His glory is that, his glory that is full of grace and truth provides a fullness from which we may receive. So don't just observe, we should be in the posture to receive. That's the second purpose for which he came. If you want to know what God is like, you've got to look at Jesus, but don't just look. Receive. Point number three, to give us God's grace. That's the second reason why the word became flesh. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. That's the first grace in verse 16. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the grace that came upon the grace of verse 16. So there was certainly grace in the law. 
We don't always look at it this way, but it's true. The law included the sacrificial system where atonement could be made for sin, but the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. So the sacrificial system was symbolic, it was provisional, it was temporary. The law was given through Moses. It was good, but law can't change our hearts. I mean, who's going to say that um, have no other gods before God or don't murder or don't commit adultery, that those are bad? No, those are good, right? But law on its own can't change our hearts. It only shows us how sinful we are. Covetousness, don't covet. Don't lie. Have no other gods before me. It shows us how far we fall short of loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbors as ourselves. So the law is powerless to change us. So how can God's grace become ours? Not by law, Moses, but we receive from his fullness grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came to earth, the angel didn't say to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is given this day a new law, a new course of behavior. That's not what he said. No, the angel said, unto you is born this day a Savior. So I'm going to close by reading kind of an extended meditation by a guy named Tim Chester. Um, I've actually read through this book through this past month. Um, The One True Light, Daily Readings for Advent from the Gospel of John. It's good, really good. Eugene actually pointed it out to me, lent it to me. Um, So he does a masterful job of bringing all this together in kind of a clear and powerful way. So this is not going to be on the screens, this quote. So you may just want to close your eyes and kind of concentrate on the words and meaning. Here's what he writes. God placed the first man and woman in the garden home of Eden. We were at home with God. But when we rejected God, we were exiled from Eden. Ever since, whether, whether or not we've realized it or thought of it this way, we've all had a deep longing for home. It was to address this sense of dislocation that God provided the plan for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 to 27. The tabernacle was a map showing us the way back home. So it was full of echoes of Eden. The clues were all embedded in the architecture and furnishings. The lampstand, for example, was covered in buds and blossoms. The tabernacle looked like a garden with a tree that gave light. It was an echo of the tree of life at the center of Eden. Seven times in the account of creation, Genesis 1, we read, God said. And seven times in the tabernacle instructions, we read, The Lord said to Moses. Moreover, both accounts culminate in a description of the Sabbath. The building of the tabernacle was a symbolic rebuilding of our garden home in Eden. So the tabernacle was an echo back to Eden and a pointer forward to our true home. And what is our true home like? Again, the clues are embedded in the furniture of the tabernacle. The ark was designed as the footstool of a king. This was where God would meet with his people to give them his commands. Home is the place where we live under the reign of God. The table had the bread of the presence on it at all times. It wasn't there because God was hungry. Rather, it was a permanent sign that God invites us to enjoy community with him. Home is the place where we eat in the presence of 
God. The lamp looked like a life-giving tree, but it was also a light-giving lamp. So God's prototype of home was a place of both life and light. Home is the place where we walk in the light of God. If these were signposts showing us the way home, where did they point? The answer is given in verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, made his dwelling among us. Jesus tabernacled among us. God made his home among us in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the point where heaven touches earth. Jesus is the true ark. He is the place or the person where we live under the reign of God. He is the king through whom God reigns. Jesus is the true bread. He's the bread through whom we eat in the presence of God. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Jesus is the true lamp. He is the light of God in whom we walk. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace upon grace. Grace and then more grace. Today, enjoy this grace upon grace. Not the grace of a footstool behind a curtain, but the grace upon grace of the living king who reigns on behalf of his people. Not the grace of bread on a table, but the grace upon grace of the living bread who brings true satisfaction and joy. Not the grace of a lamp on a stand, but the living light who reveals the living God. What grace we have received. So the light of the world came down into our darkness to rescue us from the domain of darkness. Many did not recognize him, but the darkness did not overcome him. The world is dark, but the light is greater. So we can behold the sun, see the glory of God. He came to reveal the glory of God. He is the invisible God in visible human flesh. But let's not merely behold. If we perceive who he is, and what God is like, and what he has done for us on the cross, then we also perceive our desperate need for grace. So we open our empty hands. All we come to the table with is need and debt and sin. But you can receive with the empty hands of faith the grace of God for sinners like you and me. John writes in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Born again, born of God. Like he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And for those of us who have been born again, who are Christians by this fullness of grace, let's never stop perceiving and receiving. Like, we got to keep looking to Jesus. Don't you want to know God? If you want to know God, you got to look at Jesus. We're never going to get to the bottom of this well. This is grace upon grace. There's a fullness that we will never exhaust. So keep looking, keep receiving grace upon grace. Don't you need more grace? Oh, how we need more grace. And hallelujah, Jesus is not empty. He never runs on empty. He is 
fullness. His resources are super abundant and overflowing. He is generous, not stingy. He's willing, not reluctant. He is full of grace and truth. Think about it. The one thing, like we scratch and claw, we get jealous and envious, we get frustrated, we lick our wounds, self-pitying, all this stuff because we look around and somebody else has got it better than us. The one thing that you and I most need in the universe is the one thing that's available to us all in unlimited supply. It is never a zero-sum game with God. Never more for you, less for me. <sighs> no. From his fullness of grace, we can all receive grace upon grace because that is what God is like. Let's pray.